Will you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11, Hebrews chapter 11. And the fellows have some Bibles for you to follow along. So if you need a Bible, just get their attention as they make their way down the aisle. And they'll get a copy of the scriptures to you marked at Hebrews 11. So you can turn right there. As we continue our series, draw near to God through the book of Hebrews. And we have spent many weeks now in this particular chapter, which is called Faith's Hall of Fame. Because as you see in that chapter, it mentions numerous people from the past who have displayed faith, trust, belief in the word of God and the will of God. Chief among them, the man we will look at again today, having looked at him a bit two weeks ago, that man being Abraham. Most of you know that my undergraduate degree is not in Bible, as is the case for many pastors who do have a degree in Bible, but mine is actually in computer science. And Wayne State, from which I was granted that degree, requires that for any degree you have to have three semesters of a foreign language. Now, I was planning to attend seminary as soon as I was finished at Wayne State. And at seminary, I would have to take Greek and Hebrew. And I didn't really know how French or Spanish or German was going to help me with either computer science or in the future ministry at, and at seminary. And so I sought and I was granted permission to take Greek at the seminary and then have an oral examination at Wayne State, and upon passing that, I'd receive my degree. And so I took the classes at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary and returned to Wayne State for the exam. I'd be lying if I told you that I was not quite nervous about it. I did not know with whom I would be meeting or what they might ask. I was simply told to bring some of my work from seminary with me, homework, translation, tests, and so on. Turns out the test was administered by a single fellow who was the chairman of the Greek department at Wayne State. We sat at a table. He looked over my papers, one of which was an assignment that we had had to translate the book of 1 John in the New Testament. I knew I was going to be okay when he asked me, so what is this one John? Now, he's the chairman of the Greek department from whom I'm hoping to be granted a pass through this three-semester of foreign language requirement. And so I want to be kind. And I say, um, John wrote one gospel in the book of Revelation and three letters that bear his name, and they're numbered one, two, and first, second, and third. And then he looked some more and he said, well, it looks like you've done some good work here. I can sign off on your language requirement. That's the state of higher education in our land, friends. Now, I bring that up because in the passage we're going to consider today, we have a test. A test that, like mine, was oral in nature. But that's really where the similarities end. Because the test about which we're going to read was administered by not the chairman of some department at a school of higher learning, but the test was administered by God himself, the chairman of the universe, who not only knows his subject absolutely thoroughly, but he knows exactly what his students still need to learn. Unlike my exam, such as it was, this student about whom we'll read was given no advance warning. 
It was a, a pop test, one that he was not expecting, to say the least. And unlike my exam, it was not knowledge that was being tested, but rather, as we'll see, devotion and commitment and trust. Unlike my exam, which was easy, this one was very difficult in the extreme. The most difficult test that one could possibly imagine. Unlike mine, which was inconsequential in the grand scheme of things, whether I passed or failed, literally life and death were at stake in the test we read about in verse 17 of Hebrews 11, which tells us, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him. God administered this test to Abraham. We're going to read about that, and in order to understand the reason and the results for this particular examination, we need to remember that God had promised childless Abraham that his, Abraham's descendants, would be as numerous as the stars. And God, as we'll read, gave him this promised child at an advanced age, and yet we'll see what God tested him with. So will you hold your finger in Hebrews 11 and turn to the very beginning of your Bible, the 17th chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis 17 and verse 16, God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Now, this name change to Sarah, Sarah means princess, and is undoubtedly connected with the phrase at the end of verse 16, that she is going to have this child, even at her advanced age, but out of this child are going to come kings of peoples, and thus her name is changed to Sarah or princess. And verse 17 tells us Abraham's reaction to this news from God. Abraham fell face down, and he laughed, and he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? I, I can envision Abraham chiseling out a note to Sarah. And he says, hey, the Lord says, uh, I'm going to have a baby. LOL. In verse 19, God says, Sarah will indeed have this son. And God specifies what his name's going to be. Verse 19, yes, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. And why does God give him the name Isaac? Because Isaac means laughter. And Abraham laughed. And then the next chapter, chapter 18, the Bible tells us that Sarah laughed. And God knew that anyone who did not fully understand what he was going to perform would laugh at this news that a woman at this advanced age would have a child. But God fulfills his promise as he always does. And so look at verse 21, or excuse me, chapter 21 and verse 6. Chapter 21, verse 6. 
Sarah says this after God has fulfilled his promise. God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And so here, here you have a situation at the announcement of the news. Abraham laughs. He tells it to Sarah. She laughs. God says, name the child Isaac, which means laughter. And then in verse 6 of chapter 21, Sarah acknowledges this is too humorous to be true if it weren't for the intervention of Almighty God. This boy, Isaac, then, is the joy of their life. Imagine how they would speak to this young man, Isaac, having been given a promise from God that through Abraham and then through Isaac and through Isaac's descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I've made it a habit to tell our girls regularly that they are special. And they are special. As a matter of fact, any child born into the home of even one Christian is extremely special. Because they are set apart from most of the families of the earth because they are children who live in a home where at least one model of the gospel and godliness is set before them. If you're born into a family with two Christian parents, you're special indeed, blessed indeed. Our girls are specially blessed by God. Your children are specially blessed by God growing up in a God-fearing home. And undoubtedly, they would tell Isaac over and over again, Isaac, you're special. And Abraham loved his son, his promised son, his only son. And he and Sarah waited with great expectation to see what God would do with him. How exactly would God use him? No doubt Abraham and Isaac had many times to talk about the future together as this boy was growing up. What do you want to be, Isaac, when you grow up? Very special child, very special relationship indeed. But then we come to chapter 22 of Genesis. And in chapter 22, incredibly, in verse 2, God says, Take your son. And God says to him, your only son, Isaac. Now, Abraham knows Isaac is his only son. He knows that very well. God is reminding him of the gravity of what he's about to test him with. Take your son. Your only son, I'm reminding you, as if you need to be reminded, take Isaac whom you love. And go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So friends, I ask you, what or whom? Do you value most in this world this morning? Because that is what is being tested in Abraham. 
whom do you value above all else and everyone else in my universe, Abraham? And I am telling you to take your only son whom you love and I know you love. And I am telling you to do the unthinkable. To sacrifice this only child. What would you do? It's a sobering. In fact, I, can, I cannot think, other than passages on hell in the Bible, a more sobering passage in the entire Word of God until we see its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Well, what would you do if you're Abraham? Well, what many of us would do would, come up, would be to come up with all sorts of reasons why God did not mean what he said. God can't mean that. I mean, we know he can't mean that because he's already promised that it's going to be through Isaac and Isaac specifically through whom the descendants of the earth are going to be numbered as numerous as the stars, through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. This blessing is going to come through this son and now God says, go and sacrifice him. So friends, plug in here your obedience to the things that God tells you to do. God tests Abraham with this ultimate obedience. God has not tested any of us to the point of death or the point of someone else's death. And yet we find ways to rationalize and demure from the things that God tells us clearly to do. What would you do? Verse 3, Genesis 22. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. Now, friends, you just consider that first phrase, early the next morning. No dallying, no delay. Early he rises to obey what God has clearly said to him. God's voice has spoken, a voice with which he is Greatly familiar. It's the voice that called him out of Ur of the Chaldees that we saw two weeks ago. It is the voice with whom he has communed throughout his sojourn. And now as a result, God has called him his, his friend. Three times in the word of God, Abraham is referred to as God's friend. And we see the kind of relationship and trust he has in this God in verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham gets up, saddles his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, set out for the place God had told him about. Abraham and Isaac have no doubt reviewed dreams together and plans together and joys and hopes just Abraham makes this journey with this promised son to do in obedience to God the unthinkable. I can imagine his arms and his legs being virtually limp as he seeks to make this journey with this lad at his side. The journey is three days worth. And verse 4 tells us on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship 
And then, and notice this phrase, and then we will come back to you. (laughs) Somehow, some way, Abraham knows that his job in this life is to do what God says, period. And God has the ability to take care of the rest. Somehow, we, both of us, will come back to you. I know what I've been told to do. In obedience to God, I'm going to do it. But somehow, this God who has made this promise and at the same time has made this command to me is going to bring us both back to you. He doesn't know exactly how that's going to happen, but he knows God does and God will. And so verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. And the Bible tells us about no dialogue as they're taking those final fateful steps until the silence is broken by Isaac's voice. Verse 7, Isaac spoke up, said to his father Abraham, Father, Isaac knows something is amiss. Father, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb? He has witnessed his dad worship God by sacrifice, time and again. He knows what's required for the sacrifice. We have the necessary implements, but where is the lamb, Father? And Abraham answers the only way that he can. God will provide, verse 8, the lamb for the burnt offering. And notice, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Isaac is apparently cooperating with this. The Bible does not tell us how old he was. In verse 1 of chapter 22, it simply says, Sometime later, God spoke to Abraham and told him to do this. He was perhaps a teenager, uh, probably not an adult, either a young boy or a teenager. And in either case, he could have outrun or overpowered the old man. But he doesn't. Abraham bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. Those of you that have children and have grandchildren, what's the most important thing or person to you in the universe? And that's the test that God is giving this man. 
And this man is prepared to do what God says and to trust God to work out his command and his promise. Both. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear, that you revere, that you extol, that you value. You fear, revere, extol, value God because you've not withheld from me your son. And notice the phrase again, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, he took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Friends, Abraham was given this ultimate test of value, who or what. Does he value or do you value? And I have for you in the outline inserted in your program the take-home truth from our passage in Hebrews 11 that's based upon Genesis 22 and the story we've just read. The truth we need to take home today from this is this, that believers value God and they value God above all else. Verse 17 of Hebrews 11 again. By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Friends, this is what those who, like Abraham, by faith live. Those who are believers. Remember, faith means belief. One who has faith is a believer. And believers do these three things. First, in your outline, believers obey the will of God. In obeying the will of God, we need to understand that it is God's will. It is God's desire that we value him above all else. Do you remember Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the first and this is the greatest commandment. The first sin of humanity was to desire the stuff that God had made more than the God who made it. And God, as the giver of all good gifts, summons us at all times to love the giver more than the gift. And that includes our relationships. And that's why Jesus said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I wonder if there has ever been a message on a passage like that in Joel Osteen's church. 
God wants you happy and prosperous and wealthy. Friends, what Bible are we reading? God says, I am supreme and I am to be valued and loved above all else. We give gifts. But when we give gifts, we are simply the conduit. Hear this. We are simply the conduit of someone else's gifts. The willingness for me to give away shows that I believe that. That it's not mine to begin with. And thus it honors the ultimate giver, God. But God is the one who gives everything and everything and everyone is to be used and to live and to breathe for his purposes. We are to value him above all else. Paul asked the question, what do you have that you did not receive? The anticipated answer is absolutely nothing. God is the source. God's not working on anyone's behalf as we are to work on his behalf. He's not working on anyone's behalf but his own. And he deserves to be praised for his generosity. And he desires to be praised for his generosity. And so, friends, when we have the gift of health, we are to see God as the giver of that gift. When we have the gift of sustenance day in and day out and week in and week out, we're to see God as the giver of of our sustenance. That is why before we partake of a meal, we bow our heads and we say, Lord God, thank you for providing this meal. If we have the gift of life, we're to see God as the one who's the giver of life. God desires that we value him above all else. Believers will do the will of God and the will of God is that we value him above all else. And that means that God will bring times that test what we love the most. It is God's will that we desire him above all. We value him above all. There, therefore, will be times where he will test what we value most. See, we forget that all we are and all we have are gifts from God. And what we begin to do, friends, what I begin to do, what you begin to do, is take ownership rather than engaging in stewardship. And so this child now that God has blessed us with is no longer a child that I am to be a steward of for his purpose. This child is now mine to do with this as I please. And instead of becoming conduits, we become cul-de-sacs. Instead of becoming an instrument through whom God's value is shown to those around us and those he's placed in our circle of influence, we hoard them. Instead of conduits, we become cul-de-sacs, storing what we receive for ourselves. And so I ask the question, who's time is it that you've been given? Monday through Sunday, every moment of every day, to whom does the time belong? Whose money is it? It's my hard-earned money. That's whose. Whose body is it? 
Whose spouse is it? Whose children are they? God will bring times of testing to find out who or what we really value. That's why he said to Peter, after Jesus had died on the cross, was raised, he's giving instructions to his first followers, and he's testing Peter's allegiance. Remember, Peter has already denied the Lord. And in John chapter 21, Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me more than these? Than these what? In the context, I understand it to be these fish and this bread that he's just provided for them. Do you, Peter, love me more than the stuff that I give? And there will be times then in our lives where God will test that. And he says to Peter, after Peter acknowledges, Lord, you know I do. He says to Peter, I tell you the truth. You will one day stretch out your hands and you will be led where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. God will test what we value. Remember Job. I haven't had the privilege of hearing Matt's message, but I know part of it was from Job, I think, recently. But we know the story of Job. In one day, possessions, relationships, wiped out. This man is being tested about who or what is most valuable. Do you remember what Job said? The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Friends, I ask you, what is most valuable to you? God will bring times of testing to test what we value. But like Abraham, God prepares us for the test. You look at Abraham and you say, how could early in the morning he get up and just do what God said? Not knowing how it was going to turn out. Simply trusting that it would turn out. How could he do that? Here's how. Because God had prepared him for that test. All that you read about with regard to Abraham beginning in Genesis chapter 12. And his relationship with God that's being cultivated in his sojourn and following God. To go to a place he knows not. Simply God says, I'll show it to you. In all of that, God is preparing this man's faith To trust me when you cannot see. Hear this. Everything that you are undergoing right now, everything, is God preparing you for the next test of your devotion of who or what is most valuable to you. If we cannot trust Him in the small thing, We will not pass the larger test when it comes. This man passed that test because he had passed the smaller quizzes along the way. One final thing with regard to obeying God's will. He'll test us to see what we value. But he will not tempt us. God tests us, but he does not tempt us. James chapter 1, consider it all joy 
When, not if, you fall into trials. The word trials is the same word for tempting in your New Testament. Same word, tempting and trial. God brings trials to try us, to examine us, for us to emerge better as did Abraham. But he does not design these trials, these circumstances, as occasions for us to sin. Whether or not we sin is a matter of how we respond. So believers obey the will of God. Secondly, we see in Abraham that believers accept the word of God. Notice verse 18. Even though God had said, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. And so here is Abraham faced with irreconcilable promise and command. How do you put those two together? It's going to be through Isaac that your offspring are going to be counted, reckoned. Offer Isaac. How are you going to put that together? I can't put that together. But I accept the word of God above my own ability to understand. Do you hear that, friends? God says, I am the one true living God. I am one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can play with that Rubik's Cube as long as you want. You'll never figure that out. Never. But I believe it, absolutely believe that God has revealed himself through his word. He has told us about himself and ourselves and what he's placed us here to do, even if I, with my puny mind, can't understand it all. Abraham accepted God's word. We are called to do likewise. The Bible tells us that God is sovereign. He controls everything that happens in his world, and he holds us responsible for what we do. Go figure. When you get that figured out, come and let me know. But does the Bible teach those things? Absolutely. And we, believers, accept his word. But often, let's be honest, this is what we do. We say, you know, I don't see how it's going to work out. I think if we do that, there's no way things are going to turn out well. So we can't do that. How should, I, how should I discipline my kids? We have a parenting series next week, I'll tell you. But you know, as parents look at that, they say, you know, if I take things away from my kid, if I tell my kid no, then that's just going to alienate them. Never mind the fact that as we will see in the parenting series, God teaches us to do that. God does that to us as a matter of fact. But we reason we can't do that because it won't turn out well if we follow what God says. Or in the church. God is very clear that if someone persists in unrepentant, open sin, that we have no choice, left with no choice, but to say we're going to have to assume your profession of faith is invalid. We're going to have to disfellowship a person from the church. What a painful, painful, horrific thing. I hate it. To have to do that. I would love it if we never had to do that again. But God says, this is what I tell you to do. And we reason, well, is that going to turn them on to the church? Is that? Listen, I don't know what it's going to do with them. Here's what I know. This is what God says to do. I'll let God figure it out. Because believers accept his word. 
And we see in Abraham as well. The believers not only accept the word of God, but they trust the ways of God. Verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. We have no indication that God said what he was going to do. As a matter of fact, Abraham didn't, Isaac didn't die and thus didn't need to be raised. But Abraham reasoned, verse 19, the word that's translated reasoned is the word from which we get our word logic. He thought about it. And if God is God, then God can do anything. And so logically, God can have this command and he can have this promise and he can work both of them out in ways I don't know. If he chooses to have me kill Isaac, he can raise Isaac. Believers trust the ways of God. And what are those ways? God will make a way. When there seems to be what? When there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. But he will make a way for me. Believers trust the ways of God. Friends, you will only do these things. Desire the will of God and accept the word of God and trust the ways of God. You will only do those things if you value God above all else. Now, I trust that you cannot miss the connection between this epic story of Abraham and Isaac and the gospel message of God the Father sending his only son who did die for you and for me. And that's indeed the picture that God intended us to see in Abraham and Isaac. Jesus would say centuries later, Abraham saw my day and he was glad. I believe this is when Abraham saw Jesus' day. He saw that God would provide the lamb that's needed. And God provided that lamb in Jesus Christ. We're going to conclude in a way that we've never concluded before, with a video clip. I'll set up the video clip, and it runs for about 11 minutes, and then we'll be finished. But the video clip is about the connection between what God did in this story of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a video that's about 25 years old. So you'll see some of the characters and some of the computer equipment and all that stuff are dated. But don't focus on that. Focus on the message of these two missionaries that went to Papua New Guinea, a husband and a wife. They were rejected by the first missions agency they applied to, said they were too old. A missions agency, New Tribes Mission, took them on. They went there and they worked with the Mook, uh, the Mook excuse me, tribe in Papua New Guinea. These were folks who had never heard the gospel, had never heard about the Bible. And they spent three months explaining to them the storyline of the Bible, centered on Isaac and Abraham, culminating in Jesus Christ. Let's watch the video, and then I'll have some final comments. Before we could start teaching, we had to prepare Bible lessons. 
Our tribal language helper, who was not a believer at that time, was the key to getting the proper Bible terminology we needed. Even before we started to teach, the Mok seemed to sense a wonderful message was coming. When the teaching finally started, the entire village of 310 people gathered. We never mentioned Jesus Christ until after two months of teaching Old Testament foundational stories. The first day, we began by showing them a map of their village. Then we showed them where the surrounding Moke villages were located on that map. From this point, we explained to them progressively where they were located in relationship to the neighboring tribal groups, where in the province they were located, where the province was located in the country of Papua New Guinea, and where Papua New Guinea was in relationship to Australia, Japan, United States, and Israel. Then we explained how the Bible, God's talk, many years ago had come from Israel to Europe and then around the world and was now coming to them, the Mok people. In the second lesson, we discussed how different people groups believe they arrived here on this earth. The Mok people believed they were created by two different birds. When we told them that some people in our country believe they evolved from an ape-like creature, they said, they're stupid. We asked them, out of all of these beliefs, which one is correct? And they said, we don't know. Then we told them, this is why God has given his written word to mankind and it never changes. Starting with God, we explained what he is like, his attributes. Then we told them about Satan and his fallen angels. The Mok felt that hell is a fitting place for Satan and that God was right in preparing it for him and his demons. From there, we taught them about creation and Adam and Eve and man's choice to sin. We explained how God promised a Savior who would someday come to deliver us from sin. Other Old Testament stories followed in which we emphasized God's greatness and grace, man's lostness in sin and helpless condition, and God's provision of a blood sacrifice through the killing of a lamb. Often we used drama to help them understand what we were teaching. When we told how God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, it presented a dilemma. Abraham was obviously a godly man, so he would obey God. But it was through Isaac that the Savior of the world was promised to come. I knew that somehow Abraham would obey, but God must save Isaac's life perhaps with a substitute lamb. Before we finish the story, four different men individually suggested that Abraham would obey God, but God would somehow intervene and save Isaac's life by providing a substitute lamb. They developed a sincere reverence of God and feared daily that God might rightly destroy them because of their sin. They said, we are just like those people in Sodom and Gomorrah. For two months, 
We taught key Old Testament stories chronologically before we finally introduced Jesus Christ as the Savior born as a babe in this world. As we studied the life of Christ, they fell in love with Him and Jesus became the Moke Hero. They loved Him and they idolized Him. Never during the weeks Mark taught did a villager miss a lesson though he taught for three months, Monday through Friday, two times a day. Villagers that were sick were brought on makeshift stretchers. And when an expectant mother was near delivery, they arranged for her to be close enough to the meeting to hear the story. The baby arrived in the middle of one of the sessions, but the teaching still went on. At times the moak were so intense they stopped eating and would not even sleep. They spent every waking moment discussing the message and re-listening over and over again to the lessons recorded on cassette tapes. This wonderful Jesus was perfect and he could do anything. He was God. They finally came to explain the betrayal by Judas and the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Judas's betrayal was upsetting to the most, but they still had faith that somehow Jesus would escape. That was the last story we told them before the gospel presentation. At the end of it, we said, Tomorrow we will finish our talk. The next morning, the people were all gathered before sunrise. I told the story of Jesus appearing before Pilate. The people were very sober. When during our skit they saw Jesus being spit upon, beaten, and finally put to death, they were simply appalled. They were distraught. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. Because the death and shedding of blood is so significant to the gospel story, we had rigged a balloon filled with colored water to be pierced by our designated Roman soldier. It was when they saw the blood that the story began to take on significance. Our explanation and portrayal of Jesus Christ's resurrection was simple, but to them, very powerful. The Savior was alive. Then I went back into the Old Testament stories and beginning with Abel, explained how Jesus was our acceptable sacrifice, just like Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. When I finally reached the story of Abraham and Isaac, I said to them, Listen, just as a real lamb was substituted for Isaac, so Christ's death and blood has been shed as a substitution for you. At that point, the lights really went on. I could see and hear them responding all over the crowd. I believe! I believe! I believe! I stood in their midst and asked them what they thought. From all over, responses came like this. <laughs> I know I was born in sin. I believe Jesus paid for my sin, that he died in my place. He is my sin bearer. I lived in fear trying to please the spirits, for I knew no other way to be free from sin. 
but God in His grace has sent you to us. I've heard it and believe the death and blood of Christ is payment for my sin. I believe it, and God has forgiven me. On that day, almost all the village expressed belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a sense of tremendous relief. The Mok are generally a restrained people, but as the gospel sunk in and new believers sensed the liberation from sin, spontaneous rejoicing broke out. Watch what happened. Village believers stating that he too believes that Christ has paid for his sins. Itao, which means it's true or it's good, it's very true. Village grammar rejoicing that he believes, so does she. Different ones giving testimony as to their belief in Christ as their sin bearer. Mark saying that if they really are believing, then God's word says that their sin is forgiven. Itao, it's good, it's true. Spontaneous rejoicing breaks out. This went on for two and a half hours. Considered your interest in our mission board, and I'm sorry we do not believe you're missionary material. You'll just be too old and possible. Gloria, don't fret yourself so over those people. Consider your health. You have children. Mark and Gloria, as a church, we are standing behind you. We'll pray for you. We'll support you. Go in the Lord's name. I wonder when the last time was that any of us were excited about the gospel. We're excited, thrilled about the value of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and the sacrifice that he's made on our behalf. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also together with him graciously give us all things? He is the giver. And he is the one that we are to value. And what he has done for us through his gift of his son is to be the most valuable thing to us in this world. And so I ask you, friends, what and who are most valuable to you? I pray that we will leave this time changed. Changed in our value system. 
because God is most valuable to us. And the message, the good news of the gospel has become most valuable to us because of what he's done for us through it. We'll be determined to live our lives then for him and for it. Not for ourselves and for the things that the giver has provided. We're going to bow in just a moment. As we do, we offer opportunity for anyone here who has not come to Jesus Christ to do so in the time that we spend praying. What do you do? You simply acknowledge as these moke believers did. I'm a sinner. Christ is the substitute provided for me by God. Repent of your sin. That is, I'm going to follow this Jesus with my life. I'm going to realign my priorities. He's going to be most valuable to me. And receive him into your life. You can pray a prayer like this from your, in your own words, from your heart to God. He promises to give you eternal life. Dear Christian friend, as we bow, let's celebrate the goodness of God in giving us Jesus Christ as our substitute and recommit to him to being number one in every area of our lives. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the example of your servant Abraham and his willing obedience to your word. Lord, I confess that my faith is weak when compared to what Abraham did. But Lord, I know that Abraham was a man like me and that a man like us and that he too was weak and only because of your grace in his life could he express that kind of belief. You prepared him for that time as you prepare me and prepare us for every time that you on your calendar place before us. And so help us to learn from this that we need to be people of belief every moment of every day, come what may. And Lord, we thank you that that drama played out in the life of Abraham was part of a grand scheme, only one act in the play that you're enacting in your world, culminating in the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, our Father, that you were willing to sacrifice your Son in agony on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that it was because of your love for us that he was sacrificed. We thank you that he's alive today and returning again. And we thank you for the difference that he's made in our lives. But, Lord, we must confess that we grow cold. We hear the stories over and over again and we go through the motions and we value then our, our stuff more than we value you. And so, Lord, break our stony cold hearts. Renew a warmth of, of love and affection for you within us so that we burn with desire to serve you and serve you above all else. And to see your name magnified in Brownstown and Huron Township and in our homes and in our workplaces and around the world. Because you are worthy. 
I pray, Lord, that recommitment is being made on the part of your people throughout this room. And Lord Jesus died to save sinners. I thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving so many here. And I pray that you are saving some right now. We ask you to move on hearts and draw people out of the world and to yourself as they embrace the gospel message and the Savior of that message. Our Lord God, we love you because you have first loved us. Help us to demonstrate that love in the way we live, valuing you above all else. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.